to John 14, 1, and we're going to go right into scripture this morning. Uh, special welcome to you if you're watching online or you're at our Port Perry or Bowmanville site. As Pastor Chris said, my name is Ben. I'm one of the pastors here. And we're going to look at the words of Jesus in John 14, verse 1, as recorded by John. He says, Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come back and I'll take you to be with me that you may also be where I am. You know the way to the place where I'm going. Thomas said to him, and I, I love Thomas, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. This morning we approach one of the most controversial statements it's said to be of Jesus, the I am statement, as we continue our series this morning. And before we unpack why, I just want to pause and pray for a second really quick. So, Father, I pray that you would speak through me. I pray that we would just settle our hearts and our minds with any distractions. And Holy Spirit, come and make known the glory of God, which is Jesus. Show us his goodness and his faithfulness, his graciousness and mercy that we might leave this place totally transformed. In Jesus' name, amen. So last Sunday, I was sitting, relaxing, beverage in hand, feet up, when all of a sudden, my seven-year-old son, or sorry, my nine-year-old son, Shabby, my oldest, comes running down the stairs, all ecstatic, all dramatic, and he's like, Mason is having an existential crisis. Well, he didn't quite put it like that, but what I'm trying to convey to you is just how dramatic kids are, right? Any parents in the room? Like, I have four kids, as some of you might know, two boys, two girls, and my kids are just so dramatic all the time. Like, sometimes they're downstairs. We have a basement where our TV and all the toys are, and they're just screaming, like screaming as if they're getting murdered. So I like, you know, stop what I'm doing, go run downstairs only to find themselves just overreacting to the fact that Pets 2 is for rent on iTunes. Like something just ridiculous. And in the same way, my, my son Shari was just overdramatic and he came and I was a little annoyed because if any of you know, to put four kids to bed all at the same time is a small miracle. And so I came to this moment, and I was like, why are you up? Why are you out of bed? And I was questioning him. But as I looked into his face, I could see the concern in his eyes. So I went up, followed him to his room where him and his brother share a room. They sleep on bunk beds. And I look at my son, and I could see just the anxiety in his face. And I could tell that he was just crying. So I tried to console him. I stop. I pat his back. And I tried to ask him, okay, so what's wrong? What's going on? Do you have a bad dream? 
And he starts to tell me, I don't know, he just started babbling, honestly. And I couldn't pick up what he was saying. But what I made out was this, that he was scared of dying. Because particularly, he didn't know what happened after death. So I started to console him. I started to pat his back. I prayed for him. And in the moment, I capitalized on the fear that he was feeling, and I tried to let him to Jesus. But it, di it didn't quite work. <laughs> Judge me all you want, but I just want him to know Jesus. But as we enter this story here in John 14, anxiety is in the air. As we see, the disciples are in a similar state of mind. Jesus' words to them are, do not let your hearts be troubled. And it gives us insight into the emotional distress that they're feeling right now in this moment. Why? Because Jesus dropped the fact that he was going to leave. Let me set the context for you really quickly. They're at this dinner party, a celebration of sorts. It's Passover. So think the equivalent of us celebrating Christmas dinner. It's this feast. And in the midst of the celebration, in the midst of this dinner party, Jesus ta starts talking and doing some random things. Well, at least to me and you. And this, one of the things that he does is he stops, he bends over, and he starts washing the disciples' feet, which in and of itself is a talking point at a dinner party, right? Then he goes on to say, yo, Peter, you're going to deny me three times. And oh, in fact, actually, I'm going to dip this bread and I'm going to give it to one of you. And the one that I give it to is going to betray me. Talk about the life of the party, right? And he's going through these motions and the disciples are hearing him. And they're getting a little confused. But everything that he does is he's alluding to his death. Scholars say John 12 to 19 all happens in a week period. And we find ourselves in chapter 14, which tells us that Jesus' death is less than a week away. And as we understand this, we start to get an understanding of the anxiousness in the room. The idea of this hopelessness that death is looming, that death is coming. Death, when brought up, instills a bit of fear in anyone. From a seven-year-old boy in Bowmanville, Ontario, to 12 men in the upper room in the city of Jerusalem. And if we're being honest, people in general, don't, we don't like talking about death. Separation always brings about a flood of all kinds of questions into our head, especially for those of us who are left behind. For those of us who have lost someone, we know the deep sorrow of losing them. And it often turns into a difficulty of integrating the state of loss with the questioning sense of what comes next. What comes next? Those were at least the thoughts that were going through my head about three years ago at the funeral of my nephew, Judah. He was born a stillborn due to complications in the womb. And I'll never forget the funeral. It was in July, it was at the beach. And at the time I was trying to, to comfort and rile in my one and a half year old daughter at the time, just keep her calm, keep her from screwing everything up in the sense of what was going on. So I picked her up and I took her to the back of the funeral where everybody was sitting to find my father-in-law just standing there by himself, looking into the distance, lost in his thoughts. And I thought for a second, how would it feel to bury your own child, let alone your own grandchild? Death is a reality we all have to face. 
Why? Because we understand that this world isn't the ultimate reality. And in knowing this, Jesus starts talking about the hope. And this is where the Christian hope gets in that I tried to console my seven-year-old with that night. Jesus starts speaking about it, and he says this, you believe in God, believe also in me. He's really just saying, trust me. Guys, just trust me in what I'm saying. I'm leaving you behind, but it's going to be really good for you. Just trust me. My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place? If it wasn't true, would I have told you is what he's saying? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. Try to catch what Jesus is saying here. As soon as he talks, starts talking about his father's house, the disciples' minds start going to ideas of heaven. He's trying to lead them to start thinking and imagining. And he goes on to describe this house with many rooms. And if we understand the word room right in its original language, we can think of a dwelling place, an abode, a permanent residence. But I don't want us to get so caught up in a dialogue this morning about what heaven is like. Some of us, you know, if we're thinking through a really Western, consumeristic, material lens, we think of this word rooms, and some of us have translated it as mansions. Like, you know, I have a mansion in heaven. But to do that, to think that way, is to miss the point of what Jesus is trying to make right here. Jesus is trying to make this point. As one scholar says, that this world, this heaven that he's talking about, is so out of what we can even think or imagine it's like nothing that we experience. That's why I don't want us to get caught up in thinking through this lens. As one scholar puts it, he puts it like this. One must take great care not to visualize God in some earth-like place. Since we are bound by space-time limitations in our thinking, we must not limit our concept of God's domain to something like our idea of a three-story universe where heaven is the dwelling place of God and it's up. Clearly, God is not running fast to catch up, and I love this, to our supercomputer space technologies. God is a long way ahead of us. The teacup of our thinking and language have not even yet approached the capacity of holding the ocean of divine truth. The domain of God is certainly beyond our finite thinking. The best we can do is to describe God's domain in metaphors. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing here to these bewildered disciples. If I can borrow the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians 2, he says, what no human mind has even conceived, the place that God has prepared for those who love him. That's what he's talking about here. And we're not supposed to get hung up in the metaphor. The key to understanding what heaven is like is found in these three words at the end of the paragraph. It's where I am. Where Jesus is, is heaven there. Heaven is the presence of God. And that understanding is sufficient. Jesus not getting bogged down by the details. He keeps going and he keeps explaining. He says, you know the way to the place where I'm going. And as I said earlier, I love Thomas's response. Thomas, he's the skeptic. He's the realist. I can imagine the whole time as he's looking at the disciples just nodding their hairs, he, he's like just thinking like, you guys are just really going to act like you know what he's talking about? Just sit there nodding your heads. 
fine, if no one's going to bring it up, fine, I'll, I'll ask him. And he goes into this question, Lord, we do not know where you are going. So how can we know the way? And this is why I love this scene and I love that John recorded it because it expressed his, his, his doubt, his frustration, his skepticism. And as he does this, watch, Jesus doesn't blink an eye. He doesn't stop and rebuke him. And I get it because I get why he's frustrated. I get why he's confused because the disciples don't understand how death can lead to life. Like most of the world, they look at death and they see and they realize the finality of it. And sure, maybe last week, as we talked about, they saw Lazarus come back to life, but they don't think that that's the norm. In some sense, they think that, okay, maybe that was just a cool thing that Jesus did, but I don't understand how is this guy going away going to benefit us? And this is the encouragement. Jesus earlier by saying essentially, don't let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. He's saying, renew your trust in me. Have faith in me. Jesus being the object of faith. And to understand John is to understand this. To him in the gospel, there is only one faith. And that is faith in Jesus and God at the same time. The Trinity. But Jesus hoping that they wouldn't let their finite minds get caught up in this hopeless situation that they're about to enter into. The sense of abandonment looming in their thoughts. Some of them, they're realizing that their leader is leaving. They left jobs. They left families. They left everything they knew to follow this man. And now he's saying he is going. Jesus is speaking hope into their situation. Jesus is reminding them that he is God, as he's about to say in a second, in an interesting way. But he understands and he wants them to understand that with God, all things are possible, no matter how hopeless your situation is. There is a better way. There is a way out. And listen, the effectiveness and strength of faith are bound up with the greatness and dependability of the God in whom the faith reposes as as Huston Taylor once put it, have faith in God means hold faith to God, hold fast to God's faithfulness. Have faith in God means hold God's faithfulness. Isn't that often the time, the reason why we are troubled? That the sense of anxiety overcomes us? It's because we forget in practice, we're not acting as if God is sovereign over all. I know that's true in my life. Like just even recently this past week, I was talking to one of my buddies on the West Coast. His name's Adam. And we we're talking on the phone. And I was talking about how I, 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 I'm going to be preaching this week. And I was just expressing my doubt, my skepticism, uh, my fear, if you will, of not thinking that God was going to work or move in what I did in this place this morning. And this is what I love, community. This is why you need friends, you know, to remind you of who God is, to remind you of the ways that he's worked through your life, to remind you of his faithfulness. And he was just telling me, like, of all the different times and all the different menus that God has used me. And in that moment, as he was reminding me, we just started laughing. We just started laughing because how quickly we forget God's goodness, how quickly we forget his faithfulness, right? Right? And I don't have to look that far back in my life. I'm not sure about you. Last year, about this time, I remember God's faithfulness, God's goodness, how he led me with his spirit. And some of you might know my story. 
but I found myself having to resign a good job at a great church. And, Je and Jesus and God, through uh, just different prophetic words and words of knowledge, he started revealing to me that he wanted me to pursue this vision that he put in my heart back in 2014. And that was to go and do ministry here in the city of Toronto, in Ontario. And through an act of faith, through an act of obedience, he told me that I needed to resign before I had any other job lined up. So I did it. And I remember just in those moments, him just guiding me his presence being with me. And as the Spirit led me one, late one night, I emailed Pastor Dave here, and I was like, hey, uh, I met Pastor Dave because he came and visited that church on the West Coast just briefly in the hallway. And so I, I, I emailed him, and I was like, hey, I might be coming to Toronto. I don't know. Do you want to be friends or something? Like, it was just a really random email. And I emailed him, and sure enough, it led to a phone call with Pastor John and Pastor Dave. And I just started sharing my heart. I started sharing what God was doing in my life. And they're like, hey, for sure we want to be friends. But if not, uh, we think you might be a good fit for this executive pastor role that we have open. And to be honest with you, I wasn't really interested in the role in the moment. And I was thinking about it, I was praying about it, and I started to sense that this is where God was leading me. So last year, this time, a month after I resigned my job, I applied for this role. I interviewed, I came here and I interviewed, and I found myself last August signing a contract to come on board on staff here. That is a testament to God's faithfulness. All that to say that even when, even when those moments of doubt hit us, even when we mistrust him, he is faithful. He is faithful. Jesus gently answers Thomas's question, and he says, and I want you to hear this. If you're a skeptic, if you're an atheist, if you're an agnostic, if you're exploring Christianity, Jesus doesn't see doubt as an obstacle to overcome, but a tool to be used to move you closer to him. And he answers the question like this. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Thomas, at first glance, might have understood the word way as Jesus revealing a path. He might have understood it as a journey to be had, to be taken. But to avoid all confusion, Jesus makes it really clear, I am the way. I am the way. And as we learn throughout this series, I am meaning that he is God. He is God. He's using a name that he revealed, God revealed to his ancestor, these, uh, the Jewish ancestor of uh, Moses. And Moses, when asking God, what is your name, God responded, I am. This is a throwback right here. He's reminding them and telling them that this, he is the ultimate being, the creator of the universe, the source of truth, the source of life. And this is a theme that we see throughout John's gospel. If we go all the way back to chapter 1, verses 1 to 4, he writes, In the beginning was the Word. He's talking about Jesus. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. No one created Jesus. He existed before the world even began because he is God. He is the uncreated. In him is life because he is life, and all things find life in him. 
in a religious pluralistic culture back then and now, Jesus is trying to make it super clear. He's not charting a new course to God like all other religions. He is God. When it comes to the course, when it comes to the map, point A and B meet in him. He is the epitome of God's grace, invading the world, becoming the bridge back to a relationship with the Almighty One, Yahweh. The Word made flesh, the resurrection and the life, the true God, eternal life, the only one who alone can say, no one comes to the Father except through me. Because who else can show us to God but God, right? Who else can lead us to the Father but God? And Jesus takes it a step further than the disciples anticipated or even can comprehend by saying this, if you really know me, you will know my Father. From now on, you do know him. You've seen him. Just let this revelation hit you. This earth-shattering revelation that only the Father can lead us to himself. And the Father is genuinely present in Jesus. And Jesus is saying, if you want to know what God is like, look at me. If you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. Pay careful attention to him as you read the Gospels, as you look at John 8, as he engages this woman caught in adultery. Look at his kindness that he shows her, his gr the graciousness, the mercy, the love in his eyes as he's talking to the woman. Or think about as he's coming into the city of Jerusalem and he's weeping over the city and he's weeping over these Jewish leaders that are about to condemn him to death. Just feel the compassion that he has. God, or just think about moments ago when he stooped down low to wash the feet of the disciples, the tender care, the nature that he shows us, Jesus, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. We need to allow these stories to speak to us and to help us realize how personal this God is and allow it to erase any impersonal ideas of God that we might have. Christianity, unlike other religions, talks about God in such a personal way, not impersonal. And unlike other religions, the point, he points, Jesus is pointing you to truth, him being the truth. All other religions point to a truth out there, but Jesus is saying, I am the truth embodied. I'm wisdom embodied that, that caused the universe into being. He is reality. He's reality. I hope that is encouraging some of you this morning. Because this is why we gather. We gather to be reminded of who God is. I love how one N.T. Uh, Wright, he's a theologian in the UK, brilliant guy. And in an interview, he talked about why he goes to church on Sunday. And he says that even him being a theologian, he like rewrote the New Testament in his own translation, okay? That's how smart this guy is. And he goes to this small church, why, he said, to be reminded of the gospel, to be reminded of who God is. We all need this reminder. But as I say this, as I talk about Jesus being the way, the truth, and the life, for some of you, Two questions might come into your mind. Two questions that you might be wrestling with in these moments. And I want to deal with two of them. One question might be this. Does my life get better? 
Ben, you're saying that Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. So if I follow him, does my life get better? Well, the answer to that question is yes and no. No, meaning that if you're looking at this life or the idea of life through just this earthly lens, this materialistic lens that I talked about, the answer might be no. You might still deal with that physical health problem that you're dealing with right now when you choose to follow Jesus. Your financial situation might not change when you choose to follow Jesus. Some of you might still be homeless. Some of you might have to deal with broken relationships with friends and family members. If your idea of life is only the idea that culture gives you, this idea of the good life that we get from the world around us that is based on the acquiring of material things, then no, the answer is no. But if you think bigger, if you expand the way that you think beyond your finite mind, the answer is yes. And I want to help reframe the way you think for a second. So if we look at the, the word life in the Greek, there's three words that are usually used for it, okay? The first word is bios. Bios, meaning biological life. The life that me and you know, okay? The natural nature of life that is sustained by air, food, and water. The other uh, word for life that is used in the Greek is called psyche or psyche. Sorry, as we know as, uh, as psyche. Uh, that, that we get this idea of the soul, the soul life. And this is what differentiates humans from animals. But this third word for life that we get in the Greek that Jesus is using here is called zoe. Zoe can be best understand as the spiritual life, the life that Jesus offers when he says that he's the life. It's best understood as the fullness of life, life genuine, life true, a life that we cannot acquire on our own. And all that to say this is when we start to reframe the way we think to more than just a material way of thinking about life, the answer is yes, it will change. And this is what I was wrestling with as I was writing this talk this week. I could stand up here and explain to you this Zoe life. I could try to describe it to you. Like the times that uh, satisfaction that I experienced, the joy that's come from living my life with Jesus. I, and I, again, I don't have to think back, uh, back in uh, a, uh, like Christmas of 2012. I remember it so clearly. I remember it was a time that, again, God asked me to resign. The only job that I knew, and this was my first job in ministry, and I was really nervous this time because I didn't have a bachelor's degree. I didn't have any seminary training, and this senior pastor that hired me to be a youth pastor just took a chance on me. And so when God asked me to take this step of faith, I was very hesitant, but I did it. And some of you might start realize this pattern that I have in my life. But I resigned from this job knowing that God was going to provide for me something. And there was no job on the horizon. But as I stepped into that moment, okay, my situation wasn't great. That season was horrible. We were living with my in-laws because I was making less than probably like $25,000. We had two kids at the time. And we lived with my in-laws because we couldn't afford rent, let alone groceries at times. And we were living with my in-laws because we wanted to make the sacrifice because we believed with all our hearts that God was calling us into ministry. So in those moments, as I moved and resigned my job, I remember just God's presence coming so close. 
I remember waking up in the morning and just worshiping and praying for hours because the presence of God was just so real to me. Heaven was so real to me. And we need to understand what Jesus is saying here, that in Jesus, heaven and earth meet. And not only that, when Jesus went and ascended to be with the Father and sit at the right hand of the Father, he, as he's going to say in a second that we're not going to get to, but at the, it's at the end of this chapter, he's going to send the Holy Spirit, the advocate, the helper, our experience of him in the here and the now. And in those moments, I can stand up here and tell you about that Zoe life that I experienced in one of the lowest points of my life. But you just won't get it unless you experience it for yourself. See, this is a type of life that unless experienced, it's hard to understand. It's like this, if you didn't understand what I just said. There's this restaurant uh, in West Hollywood. It's one of my favorite restaurants, okay? It's called Ciccioni's, and it's an Italian restaurant. Uh, and, and I love Italian food. It's like my favorite food, like over, over Indian food. Sorry, sorry, Mom, but Italian food is my favorite food. And just in case there's any Italian families here or watching online that would love to have the joy of having me over for a meal, my number is 436. No, I'm joking. But this... Restaurant Ciccioni's or Ciccioni's, however you say it in Italian. It's like one of my favorite restaurants. And they have this dish, okay? There's this dish, and I'm going to butcher it. It's called agnolotti, I think. Really, just think of a ravioli of sorts with meat. And this is my favorite dish because it's this pasta, and it has this black oil, truffle oil sauce on it. And it was just amazing. And it's one of these restaurants where they just give you like, you know, this really small portion. And you're like, really? You're only going to give me like four of these? Like I can eat four bowls of this dish. And I can stand up here and talk to you and try to describe the different flavors of the pasta, the cheese, or the different sauces. But you just won't get it. Why? Unless you what? Experience it for yourself. But I want to try to give you a bit of a taste. And to do that, I want to go to an excerpt from C.S. Lewis's book, Mere Christianity. And to set up this quote, you need to understand this whole metaphor that he uses. And he uses it throughout some of his books, as Pastor Angela last week talked about the Chronicles of Narnia. And it's this metaphor that he says that a statue is like a man, but is unlike a man because what? It's not alive. It looks like a man, but it's not alive. It doesn't have life. In the same way, man is made in the likeness of God, but it doesn't ha it, he doesn't have the life of God. He doesn't have the life of God. And he goes on to describe that God, the God kind of life, is this life that we don't even understand. And he, start, he starts comparing different things to God. Like he talks about matter being energy, but it's not like God in the sense of him being energy and power. But he goes and goes and lands on this, bios. He uses the Greek word, and he says this. In this biological sense, it's not the same as the life there is in God. It's only a kind of symbol or a shadow. Which brings us to our quote, and I love it. In reality, he says, the difference between biological life and spiritual life is so important. The spiritual life which is in God from all eternity and which made the whole natural universe is zoe. Bios has, to be sure, a certain shadowy or symbolic resemblance to zoe, but only the sort of resemblance there is between a photo and a place or a statue and a man. 
A man who changed from having bios to having zoe would have gone through as big of a change as a statue which changed from being a carved stone to being a real man. And that's precisely what Christianity is about, he says. This world is a great sculptor's shop. We are the statues and there is a rumor going around the shop that some of us someday are going to come to life. Another question that some of you might be wrestling with this morning is this. Is Jesus saying that he is the only way? Is Jesus saying he is the only way? The audacity. How could Jesus say that, you might be thinking? Right? In the city of Toronto, Jesus claiming that he is the only means of salvation rubs up against so many different people that we know. Why? Because of this, this, what, this most popular philosophy in our culture, it, it's known as New Age Spirituality. My wife, she is great at meeting the neighbors and making friends. And last week, she uh, was invited over with our kids to swim at one of our neighbor's pools. And in conversation, as she was chatting and talking, it came up that our family is Christian. And uh, it made the, the woman, the, the mother of the family, comfortable enough to share that she uh, pursues or practices New Age Spirituality. In fact, she's actually a yoga instructor, she said. And my wife, uh, she told my wife she should come over and do yoga so that she could cleanse her chakra, wh whatever that means. And if you know my wife, I bet she just like stood there laughing <laughs> nervously, awkwardly, and was like, sure, sure, and knowing that we're Christians, right? But all that to say this, this idea of new age spirituality includes the tenet of inclusivism. And this idea is has seeped into our culture, not just through yoga, but through many self-help books, from authors like Deepak Chopra all the way to Eckhart Tolle. And it includes this idea here. The idea is that no one has a lock on the truth. Indeed, that all religions have some measure of the truth, merely being different paths to the same quote-unquote God, or whatever transcendent reality exists. So while atheism says that all religions are false, Exclusivism says that all religions are true. And I love how one of my mentors and friends and uh, pastors on the West Coast puts it, to understand inclusivism, you don't have to look any farther than the comedic movie Talladega Nights. Talladega Nights. Ricky Bobby, anybody? No, it's an older movie. And don't think about this as my pastoral endorsement to go watch this movie, because it came out in 2006. This was pre-Jesus when I watched it, but just disclaimer. But there's a scene, if you haven't watched it, a character, Will Ferrell, his name's Ricky Bobby. And he's ra he races cars, and he crashes this car. And he crashes this car, and he's on fire, and he gets out, and there's a scene. He's running around the track on fire, shouting out this, help me, Jesus, help me, Jewish God, help me, Allah, help me, Tom Cruise, use your witchcraft on me to get the fire off of me, help me, Oprah Winfrey. In other words, when it comes to God, you, you best hedge your bets. One God doesn't necessarily exclude the other gods, so don't limit yourself to just one when you can believe all of them at once. But all joking aside, think about all the religions and worldviews in the world. Islam, Buddhism, Sikhism, even atheism. Jesus is not the only one that makes an exclusive truth claim. It's impossible to find a worldview that isn't exclusive in some way. In fact, by trying to be inclusive, one actually becomes exclusivist. Take the religion, the quote-unquote, uh, the religion of Western nicety that we believe as a Western culture. 
that a lot of the people in our world live by without even knowing it. And it's the religion of this, that everyone's views are true and right as long as we avoid conflict. The people who tend to be most vocal about this religion are the same people who are highly critical of narrow-minded judgmentalism of Christianity. And some of them have a right to say that. Some of them have a right, because I know a lot of Christians who are very judgmental, who speak the truth without any grace. And we need to remind ourselves that when Jesus came, he came full of grace and truth. He came to serve. He never, even answering Thomas, he never for one second forgot that there's a human behind that idea, behind that worldview. But this person that is most vocal always even says, it talks about, uh, they argue happily that all worldviews should be accepted as true. And the reality is that that stance in itself is exclusivist for two reasons. First, in trying to be inclusive, ironically, the view ends up excluding the exclusivist. The second reason is that the nature of it, the idea, the premise of this idea is that I have a particular slash exclusive slash true slash right way of thinking about all religions, namely that they are all true. Exclusivism pushes back against the claims of Jesus by arguing that there is no one truth. And doing so, it cuts off the branch in which it sits. Because to say that there is no absolute truth is a truth statement in and of itself. Thus, it's a worldview built on contradicting systems of thought and therefore needs to be abandoned. And this is where the beauty of the gospel comes in. And we need to realize this. We need to understand and we can't miss the radical exclusivity of the exclusive claim of Jesus. If we concentrate too long on the exclusive claim of Jesus that he's making, we miss the inclusiveness in what he's saying. Just think about the invitation. Jesus is talking to the disciples, and if we go back, he's talking about going to prepare a place for them. He's not saying, get this, he's not saying that this place doesn't exist. He doesn't have to go and create it. No, in fact, it's where his father lives. So a better way to understand this word preparation is that this preparation is his death, resurrection, and ascension. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Through Jesus' death, he's making a way to, to, to us to get to God. Jesus makes a way through his death and resurrection, taking the sins of the world upon himself and creating this bridge between this gulf that sin has made between us and God. Jesus tramples death and the consequence of sin as he robs the grave. Therefore, when we believe in Jesus, death loses its power on us. Death no longer being the one reality, the ultimate reality, because when we find our lives in Jesus, the reality that is known as Jesus, the Son of God, when we come alongside him, when we accept this invitation, we need to realize that this is what he is talking about. Listen, Jesus' invitation to, is to the world to come into this presence. Remember what he says, my father's house has many rooms, has many rooms. Do you see the ridiculous inclusivity of this exclusive claim? There is room for everybody, many rooms. 
It doesn't matter your gender. It doesn't matter your ethnicity. It doesn't matter your socioeconomic status. It doesn't matter what vocation you have. It doesn't matter if you have a high school diploma or a doctorate. It doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't matter what sin you have committed. This is the invitation of Jesus. Come. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Believe in me. And this is what got me this week. Okay, if you could just consider the news this past month. If you consider the news, all the murders, all the mass shootings, the stories of, you know, a businessman turned criminal, facing charges of horrendous crimes of sexual abuse and human trafficking. And this week you hear a story about him committing suicide in his jail cell. And I was reading this and I was looking at all these articles and I went online, you know, to see comment after comment that he got what he deserved. The world is a better place without him. And I, I, I understand what they're saying, but this is what I want you to consider. This is where the world's idea of inclusivity gets turned on its head. Because if you're an atheist, if you're an agnostic, if you're a skeptic, if you're exploring Christianity, you need to ask yourself this. Does your idea of exclusivity, inclusivity, does your idea of inclusivity have room for a guy like that? A criminal, a murderer, knowing that we live in a culture that is built around the idea of you get what you deserve, I think it's safe to say that your answer is probably gonna be no. No, it doesn't have room for a guy like that. And this is what makes the gospel so scandalous. Because at the root of the idea of the gospel is grace. It's the idea that you get what you don't deserve. That Jesus' invitation is to everyone, even the murderer, even the criminal. Because if you realize what he is saying, if you realize and read the Bible, you understand that we are all sinners deserving death. But Jesus came into this world to take the sins of the world upon himself, that whosoever should believe in him shall not perish but have what? Eternal life. And that's why the gospel is so, so good. So as we move into a time of worship, I want us to just respond to this gospel. Maybe there's a situation that God wants to speak to right now, give you faith, embolden you, remind you of his goodness, his faithfulness. Maybe some of you, the Holy Spirit is asking you the same question that Jesus asked the disciples. When it comes to the person of Jesus, who do you say he is? Who do you say he is? God, we pray that in the next few moments, you just open our eyes to the beauty of Jesus and everything that comes from a life lived with him. In Jesus' name, amen.